The reading is taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone new builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Here ends the reading from God's word. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we recognize as we come to this text that it is one of the most remarkable statements ever made. And we are uh, awesome. Uh, it, is, it is awesome to stand before it, really, and to come under its authority. No other name under heaven by which we may be saved but the name of Jesus. So we, we come together this morning in the name of Jesus, humbly recognizing that we are people in need of salvation and recognizing the Lord Jesus as the great Savior. Teach us and encourage us, we pray, in his name. Amen. So we do come humbly before one of the great verses of the New Testament this morning, and we've begun this series of sermons on uh, the early Christian uh, sermons, the first sermons preached by the early church, and a little bit out of sync. We did Pentecost last week, so we've moved on to Acts chapter 4 this week. But Acts chapter 4 is very much set in the context of Acts chapter 3, where we have the story of the first post-Pentecost miracle. It's one of the great stories of the New Testament, how Peter and John come to the golden gate of the temple and find uh, there the crippled man lying at the gate who cries out for help. And you remember, uh, memorably, Peter and John say that we have no money to give you silver and gold, have we none? But in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk, and the man is healed. And it's a remarkable story, and you, can, uh, you might want to just remind yourselves of it and read back into the story. A great, great miracle. I remember as a very young Christian going to a, a great kind of revival evangelistic meeting in York Minster run by um, David Watson, great evangelist of our previous generation and the uh, the man that God used to bring my, my wife to faith, in fact. And we went together to York Minster, 
and David was preaching on this story in Acts chapter 3, and his drama group reenacted the healing of the crippled man at the Golden Gate. And I shall never uh, forget uh, him uh, leaping and dancing and jumping and roaring around York Minster, uh, praising God at the top of his voice. A bit of uh, melodrama of great, um, very memorable it was too. It is a great, a great story. And it raises, of course, all sorts of questions in our mind. Is it normative for the church? Should we be doing exactly uh, what happened here with every sick person we meet and expect miraculous healing every time? Many who are, are full of faith would say so. And indeed, uh, we're going to have a service of healing here uh, on Monday week to, uh, to, to have that expectation, to pray for any and to bring those here to pray that God would move in their lives and heal them. Should we expect everybody to be healed? I suppose if I really believed that, I would never dare leave a hospital. Did he stay healed? Some research would say that this kind of healing often doesn't stick, that it's temporary. Was the crippled man back on his begging pitch six months later? Many a cynic would say so. Or are they cynics? Perhaps we're not meant to have a faith which expects the supernatural to break in all the time. Or was this miracle in Acts 3 uh, a sign of the kingdom, which, uh, was, which, uh, of the kingdom breaking in, but only a sign for the apostolic age? Was, it, was this just evidence that this was the great moment in which God was changing history? Many have thought that. Others have thought that it's an enacted parable, just as Jesus walking on the water is really about how the Lord comes to us in the stormy troubles of life and brings peace. So the healing of this man crippled from birth is a picture of how Jesus can help those of us emotionally crippled or damaged by relationships or mentally ill. It is more about that, some might say, than about physical healing. I've often, uh, I've often quoted from this pulpit Tom Houston's slightly mischievous comment on St. Andrew's when he described us as evangelical Christians uh, who are inclusive evangelicals. It's mischievous because uh, the word inclusive has been commandeered by the liberal wing of the Church of England, which wishes to tolerate everyone except those of us with firm convictions. But, but now I'm being mischievous, so I better be careful. But uh, my point is here that here in St. Andrews, I expect that when we read Acts chapter 3, many of us come to it with, with different ideas of how it should be interpreted, different expectations of what healing will mean for us today. And uh, we would adopt different positions on it. In the rest of Acts chapter 3, Peter addresses the crowd to explain to the crowd what has happened to the man. I just want to read a little bit from, if you've got it open, Acts chapter 3 and verse uh, 11, because this is really important. While the, big, the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. 
You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Uh, An astonishing explanation uh, of what had happened at the gate, that here the person whom they crucified, who God had raised to life, is now demonstrating his risen power in the healing of the beggar. And listening at the back of the crowd, we're told, at the beginning of chapter 4, were the priests and the captain of the temple guards, the guardians of truth, as they saw it, the thought police, and they did not like what they heard. Now, I would ask one question, really, about this story, and and I think it's not the question that the uh, priests and the temple guard asked. The question is this, who is this story about? Who is it about? Is it about Peter, who is the preacher? They they thought so. No, we learn nothing new about Peter from this. Is it about John? No, he's not even mentioned, except for telling us that he was there when they arrived at the Golden Gate. Is it about the healed cripple, the beggar? I think not. He seems almost incidental to the sermon. Certainly his healing has drawn a crowd, but that's about all. Is it about the Jewish people? Again, they thought it was. And yes, in part it is. Peter has some very hard things to say about them. But they were not things the people or the Jewish authorities were denying. They could not deny that they had handed Jesus over to Pilate. They could not deny that they had initiated his crucifixion. After all, some of this crowd no doubt stood outside Pilate's courthouse on that first Good Friday shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the Sanhedrin, to whom Peter preaches in chapter 4, were convinced not only that they had crucified Jesus, but that they were right to do so. Just as we have no problem with a convicted terrorist getting a life sentence, or maybe even some of us think a death sentence for a convicted terrorist, they had no qualms at all at crucifying someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews and threatened the peace of Jerusalem. So this stuff about... um, the Jews killing Jesus is very controversial for us now, of course, after two years, after 2,000 years of shocking Christian persecution of Jews. But it wasn't controversial then. It was just a matter of fact. What a striking verse, by the way, in chapter 3, verse 15. Great preaching this. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. What a great, what a great bit of preaching that is. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Now, of course, this passage and, and Peter's preaching is all about Jesus. And specifically, it's about the power and authority of Jesus' name. The power and authority of Jesus' name. Uh, chap- verse 6 of chapter 3. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing. In chapter 4, as the story continues, Peter and John are arrested, but uh, the arrest cannot quench the Pentecostal spirit who has come upon them. 
And the church has now grown, we're told, to 5,000 men uh, in in verse 4. 5,000 men, so presumably about 15,000 women, if if the church is anything to go by today. And, uh, And Peter and John are brought before the real big cheeses of the Jewish community, people with power. And this must have been a terrifying prospect for them. Imagine yourselves in their shoes. Uh, There they are, a humble Galilean fisherman, largely uneducated, in front of the most powerful group of people representing the Jewish people. The, The people who they knew had the power of life and death. I have seen Wycliffe Hall students here trembling with fear at the prospect of preaching before their their tutor at Wycliffe Hall. And that is nothing compared with what Peter and, uh, had to face here as he stood before the Sanhedrin, although it was the nearest I could get in comparison. So this is about the power and authority of the name of Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. You see, I think we can be, we can be pretty cool about not being able to think completely alike, for instance, on the place of healing in the church. Because there's a mystery in this. There's, there's an unknown element within it. There might even be some quite big ethical disagreements that we might have. Christians can't always agree about things like sexuality, for instance, or the death penalty, or building projects even. But there can be no compromise no watering down, no fudging of the issue when it comes to the uniqueness of Christ. And that's the message of these chapters. And it is on that issue that the church in our generation, in my view, will live or die. If as a local church and denomination we do not defend the uniqueness of Christ, if we do not remain faithful to our belief that the power of God is released through the name of Jesus, the unique Savior, then we are, not, uh, we are not being faithful to our faith. We must be prepared to go to the wall, as Peter and John are here, for the truth of Acts 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. We have no business in existing if we do not believe that. So let's look very quickly at the evidence Peter produces for the uniqueness of Christ. What is the evidence for believing this astonishing claim that there is salvation in no one else? First of all, there is, of course, the evidence of the healing itself. Look, says Peter, this man has been crippled for over 40 years. Nobody has been able to do a thing for him. This is throwaway man. Nowadays, thank God, we don't think like this at all about disabled people. We value disabled people, and we know uh, very, very much how important they are in our community. We put ramps in for wheelchairs, uh, lifts for those who cannot manage stairs. We widen doors. We have deaf loops. We have sign language. We help, have help for the blind, etc. We value the disabled, though I suspect for many of them, life can be very, very demanding. Not then. To be crippled was to be Uh, It was to feel and to be useless. The best you could try and do was get the best begging pitch at the temple gate. Religious people, of course, like Oxford students, were a soft touch because it was their duty to help the poor. And uh, although they didn't have government loans to spend, they had some money in their pockets on the way up to the temple. 
But every day, such people had to humiliate themselves by soliciting money. Actually, this guy even needed people to carry him to the begging place. He couldn't even get there himself. Society in general, even a super-religious society like that in Jerusalem, had given up on such people. They were on the human scrap heap. But when the power and authority of Jesus, the unique Jesus, is brought to bear, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, breaks in to this man trapped in the kingdom of this world in the most dire way. This poor man's life is transformed. I love the comment of one writer, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. Let that be a guide to every social concern program in this church. They may be our hands, but the power is Christ's. The follower of Jesus reaches out to the most needy, and Jesus is seen to be what he truly is, Lord and Savior. How easy it is for the church to lose faith in the name of Jesus and actually do exactly what Peter and John did not do, namely just give the bloke some money. No, what we do is powerful only if we do it in the name of Jesus. Peter is is almost amazed himself, isn't it? It's as if he's absolutely astonished himself to discover that the name of Jesus in the power of the Spirit transforms this man's life. One action, giving money, patches the wound and the other heals it. The evidence of the healing points to the uniqueness of Christ. And then there's the evidence of the preaching Peter's two sermons proclaim the uniqueness of Christ. In some detail, they're remarkable sermons for Peter to preach so early in his Christian experience. He says that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He is the prophet of whom Moses spoke. He is the seed of Abraham through which the whole world will be blessed. He is the one through whom forgiveness comes. He is the one raised from the dead. He is the one, 323, who brings judgment into the world. He is the one who will determine heaven and hell. What business have we got saying, ah yes, of course Jesus, just one of many ways to God. I recall seeing some smiling abbot, no doubt a delightful man, as many are, on breakfast television saying, it doesn't matter what God we respond to, to what spirituality we turn. Let the Hindu follow Krishna. Let the Muslim follow Muhammad. It doesn't matter, so long as we find some spirituality. How far is that from Peter's sermon? No, Peter would say, let the Hindu come to Christ. Oh, that the Muslim would know that the Savior of the world and surrender to him. Oh, that the Jew would know their Messiah has come, for there is salvation in no one else. It is through the name of Jesus that we are saved. If you were ever asked to give someone a Bible verse and your mind goes blank, Acts 4.12 can be a banker for you. Write it on people's books and Bibles. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. The evidence of the preaching, it's a compelling argument for the uniqueness of Christ. And thirdly, there's the the, the evidence of the believers themselves. How do we know that Jesus is unique? Because only he can change the human heart. Just a few weeks before, Peter was scared of a waitress on Maundy Thursday. 
And here he's telling the rationalist, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection at all, in the Sanhedrin, that Jesus has been raised to life and he's coming back to judge them. To judge them. Just look forward for a moment to uh, verse 13 of chapter 4. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note, what did they take note of? That these men had been with Jesus. Look at verses 18 to 20. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether, whether, whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. That's a pretty brave thing to say, isn't it? For We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Look at verses 23 and 24. On their release from prison, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. You spoke by the Holy Spirit, etc., etc., etc. The first instinct, the first instinct of these new disciples is not just to pray, but to praise God. Jesus is fantastically powerful. Eventually you'll see in verse 32 that it affected even their wallets. Even their giving was changed. That is the unique power of God to change our hearts. Miracles in people's lives still happening today. Life-changing proclamation of the gospel still happening today. Ordinary people like you and me turning from a life of selfishness and hopelessness and becoming, by God's grace, world changers. Still happening today. And all this because of the uniqueness of our wonderful Jesus. Let's praise his holy name. Amen.